Morning, everyone. So yeah, like Randall said, I'm Steve, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I'm not normally up here if you're, if you're new here. I'm not normally uh, up here the one teaching, but as Randall said, uh, we do feel like it's really important to get a mixture of voices. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm really thankful for having Randall and Matt both being, you know, obviously very skilled teachers up here as part of our normal rhythm. Uh, for me, I'm like just super grateful for that. I think for a church our size, it's, you know, it's not very common to have two skilled teachers for a church this small. So I think we're really lucky in that regard. Um, yeah, I, right before coming up here, uh, the Campbell kids handed us, it's probably meant for Quinn, but I, I, I took it from me, uh, a little sketch here. And I don't know if this, maybe this was Matt just trying to get in my head a little bit before, before the sermon. I can't really tell. So it's either, maybe you can help me decipher this, like either it's me going down in flames here, or it's, if you turn it, you know, this way, maybe it's me like throwing up from being just so nervous or something. So I don't know, maybe... Maybe that was just Matt's way of getting in my head a little bit. But um, So Matt mentioned last week about this passage, uh, being really jealous about this passage. And he's right. It's a, it's a really cool passage. It's, there's a lot in here. So, I mean, I had a really hard time actually narrowing it down. Um, but I felt like the Lord had a lot to say in here. So I'm really actually excited about this. Uh, it's pretty intimidating, intimidating and really dense. Um, but, you know, Matt gave you the warning last week of you might need a second cup of coffee. I think that warning still stands um, this week. So, you know, obviously this passage contains the transfiguration. By, by show of hands, who here feels like they just 100% no questions understand the transfiguration, right? Okay, glad, you know, if you had raised your hand, I would have invited you up here to, to finish the sermon, so I appreciate it. Now, obviously there's a ton of layers to it. Um, we're going to hit on some, some, I think, some really cool stuff today, so I'm excited about it. But uh, that said, let's ask for God's help just one more time. Uh, so pray with me, if you will. Lord, again, we just thank you for uh, this morning. We pray for uh, clarity of mind as we, as we go through this passage. We pray for really just, you know, clarity of, of my words and the communication that, um, that people are able to, to hear uh, the words that you have for us this morning. We just pray that you be with us. It's your name. Amen. So getting into first thing is really just the structure of Mark. I guess, you know, one thing that uh, to pull back is like a 50,000-foot view um, Matt and Randall did a really good job leading up to this of, you know, we, we set it up by going through Exodus first. So Exodus is a huge part of, of not just Mark, but Jesus's life. There's a lot of, of ties between the two. I mean, it's really actually pretty cool. It's not like, you know, just an Easter egg thing in like a Marvel movie where one Marvel movie points to another Marvel movie. This, is, this has like real weight, real meaning. Um, so we're going to go through some of that today. But also the structure of Mark is kind of broken up into two parts. There's chapters one through eight which really is asking the question, who is Jesus? And then this second section, chapters 9 through 16, is what is his mission? What did he come here to do? And so we're sitting in this cool place right now, right in the middle, and this is the transition between the first part, asking the question, who is Jesus, and flipping over to the second part and asking, why did he come? So we sort of are, are standing with, with you know, one foot on each side of that question today. Um, so with that... Uh, you know, the, again, the passage today represents a turning point, and we start to answer the question, we finish a, ask, answering the question, who is Jesus, and we start asking, why did he come? So again, we'll read uh, Mark 8, 31 through 3, 33, just as a, as a reminder to, to get into this next section. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. So if you remember from last week, Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so now why, within two verses, possibly within the same conversation, is Peter and the rest of the disciples so far off base, to the point where Jesus is calling him Satan, the opposer? The idea that Jesus needed to suffer was incompatible with what uh, not just Peter, but really probably all the disciples had in mind for what Jesus came to do. They were thinking he came for their agenda, for their worldly purposes, So they had this idea of what the Messiah was meant to do. And Jesus saying that he needed to die was incompatible with what Peter thought Jesus came to do. So that's why Peter's pushing back. But here we're learning the true identity of Jesus. He's stating it clearly. The passage says it himself. Is Jesus the Messiah? Yes, he is the Messiah. But he's not the Messiah of strength and dominion coming to dominate and coming to take over. He's the Messiah of suffering and weakness. Just like the story from last week where Jesus heals the half-blind man, Peter is only half-seeing who Jesus is. If you remember that passage, Jesus takes the blind man out of the town, he spits in his eyes, which is gross, and then the guy half-sees. He's asking him, well, you know, what do you see? You guys like, well, I see people, but they're walking around, and they look like trees. So I kind of see, but I kind of don't. And I kind of imagine Jesus in that moment turning to his disciples and being like, this is you right now. And then, of course, he finishes healing him the rest of the way so that he sees fully. And that's the process that, that, the, uh, that the disciples are going through right now and the process that all of us are going through continually. So I think Peter get, and the others get a bad, bad reputation here for not understanding. You know, as a side note, the reason we hate on Peter and the disciples so much is that he is us in these stories. He's the one saying the dumb thing. Um, but really, you know, we wouldn't be as receptive to these teachings if you replaced Peter's name with Steve's name. If Jesus, if, you know, if, I, if Steve says you know, rebukes Jesus, I, I'm not as receptive to that, but that is what we do, you know, so we are, we are the disciples in this, in these, in these stories, but because it's Peter is the one messing up, we, we pile on, so anytime the disciples are talking through this passage here, really hear your own voice in that as well, but it's understandable that they would have an expectation on who Jesus was, there was all this cultural momentum behind who the Messiah was and what he was coming to do, Uh, One of the stories that I think really demonstrates this super well, it's a bit of a history story, so we're going to sort of, this isn't in in scripture, but it's, you know, there's there's articles and it's a history story that applies to the first century here, so brace yourself a little bit if you're not a history person, uh, we're going to go through this for a little bit, but it's the story of the golden eagle is what it's called. So in first century Israel, obviously, or really all of you know, Israel's history, the temple has been hugely symbolic for the state of Israel, and not just the state of Israel, but also Judaism. Um, so you know, what you might not realize or, or remember is that the, the temple in, in, um, in Jerusalem, that's the temple of Jesus' day, is actually about the third iteration of that temple. It was obviously first built by Solomon, over the years destroyed or desecrated, then destroyed, and then rebuilt. And that cycle happened a few times. And so it's really kind of a hot button issue for, you know, for um, people when, you know, obviously it's, it's so symbolic for your faith and your culture that when somebody is desecrating the temple, if there's any kind of, you know, encroachment on the temple, it's a really hot button issue. And in this day, uh, the temple was built by Herod the Great. So about 20 years before Jesus showed on this, came up on the scene, the temple was again rebuilt, about 20 BC. 
And it took 46 years to construct. I mean, we know that from scripture. When Jesus says, tear this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it, they said it took 46 years to build. How are you gonna rebuild it in three days? Um, so the temple was built by Herod the Great. He was actually a Roman appointed king. So he was a Jewish man, but he was appointed by, by Rome. So he kind of had a foot in both, in both cultures in a way, but obviously his job, he was there to appease Rome. And he was re actually really good at, um, at keeping the Jewish people under control. So he, he sort of knew how to manage both sides, but his main goal was to keep, was to keep Rome uh, happy. Um, and so to do this, to, to kind of manage the, the Jewish people in this way, he appointed uh, the Sadducees, he appointed chief priest, a, a family, or in Jesus' day there was about seven families, and he appointed one to be the chief priest. And the chief priest had the job of managing and overseeing the temple system. But because it was sort of this in, indirectly a Roman appointed position, um, and because it was actually generally these seven families, at least in Jesus' day, were the wealthiest families of, of the area. So it was kind of this, again, we're talking about this power structure. It was this inverted power structure where they're responsible for the main you know, religious system of the day, but they're also the wealthiest. They're also able to, to, to do things a certain way. Because of this, corruption was just widespread, and even in the temple system. So things like what, acceptable, what constituted an acceptable sacrifice <clears throat> was dictated by the chief priest. And then not only that, they were able to sell you what an acceptable sacrifice would be. So you can see there's some like conflict of interest and corruption. So you could bring a dove and they could say, well, that's not an acceptable sacrifice. But by the way, we have a pre-approved one over here that's for sale. And they made a lot of money in this way. And not only that, it was actually illegal to spend Roman money in the temple. So they had money changers as you walked in the temple that they would charge a commission on and they would get a cut of. So this is, I mean, you can see there's like, this is enraging people that that the people who were appointed by Rome and are, are meant to oversee the Jewish faith are actually making money in this situation hand over fist. So at some point in the construction of the new temple, Herod, again, trying to appease Rome and actually thanking them for their you know, input into, into building the new temple, he had engraved on the main entrance gate of the temple a golden eagle. And so of course, in Jewish tradition here, uh, you know, from one of the, if you want to throw up the first slide, yeah. So they had, a, this isn't the actual golden eagle, but on the main entrance to the temple, they had a golden eagle, eagle inscribed. And going back to one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So you should not make for yourself a, an animal that flies. <laughs> this is exactly against what the Ten Commandments are saying. And Herod not knowing or not caring, made this image on the temple itself. This is so sacrilegious to the people of the day. And so in response to that, there was this, and this happened in Jesus' lifetime, in, in response to that, there was a group of about 40 young men and their, and their teachers who decided this was an unacceptable thing that was happening. <clears throat> and so they went and they cut down the fence with, with axes and they tried to smash the eagle to pieces. And of course, being a symbol of Rome, Roman uh, soldiers who saw this going on captured them, brought them to Herod, and Herod decided to have, make an example of these men, and he actually burned them alive, which is horrible, of course. And uh, this is the, con and the following that, there was rioting in the city, and uh, Josephus, the historian, he estimates that about 3,000 people by the end of this whole thing were killed by Rome. 
This happened in Jesus' lifetime. So this is the context that we're stepping into when Peter says, you know, we believe that you are the Messiah. We believe that you're here to fix these kinds of problems that we're having. This story helps me think in terms of our own society. What are the, what are the near-term problems that aren't kingdom problems that worth putting on Jesus to, for him to solve? But really that he, you know, it's, it's a small piece of what he came to redeem. So in, in what ways are we cutting down Jesus's, you know, kingdom mission into our own agenda and trying to fit it into our own agenda? So rather than being a violent revolutionary, Jesus's purpose is different than anyone expected. Jesus now decides to speak plainly of what it means to follow him. So from Mark 8, 34 through 38, and calling to the crowds, Calling to the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him, de- let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. From whoever can save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when it comes in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. So the kingdom of God is not operating from a place of strength and dominance. Jesus is saying that the Christian life is steeped in selflessness and humility. Jesus is modeling the purest form of humanity. And I think we know this in our truest heart of hearts. We know that humility is admirable, and we know that haughtiness is, while it's what the world expects of us, is not what we're meant to do. So Jesus is the is the opposite of a Fortune 500 CEO. He isn't telling us, uh, he isn't selling us cell phone plans like the guy on the left or literally anything under the sun like the guy on the right um, in order to launch themselves into space for their own glory and their own you know, image. This is, what the, this is the world's image of what it means to succeed. This is the kind of leader that people like Peter and those were looking for. They were looking for this strong man who would come in and just overthrow the system. Don't get me wrong, I'm an engineer and I love science and technology. Those things are amazing. But to model our lives after these guys and to have them be the gold standard is craziness. So Jesus is operating from a heart of humanity. Jesus is different from the world, and we are called to be different as well. There's a Tim Keller quote that I think captures this really well. So this is from his book, uh, Jesus the King. So he says here, For us, the kingdom of God begins with weakness, relinquishment, giving up our rights, Uh, to our own life. It begins with admitting that we need a savior. We need someone to actually fulfill all the requirements and pay for our sin. That's weakness. Jesus started in weakness, first by becoming human and second by going to the cross. And if we want him in our life, we have to start in weakness too. The kingdom of God begins there, but it won't end there. This is such a struggle for me. This is a struggle for, I think, all of us is that you know, we, we are trying to be strong in all these things, but to be strong is to not start in weakness. You know, to, to live in humility is just such a hard thing. I had to go through this even this week with, I'd relearn this this week with sermon prep. I'm going through all these books, all this stuff, and I'm compiling all this information, and I'm trying, to, I'm approaching the whole thing from a stance of strength. And of course, the Lord has to humble you. You know, you get through this thing, you know, I probably scrapped my notes and threw them all away and then redid it all like three times. And it wasn't until you approach this from a structure of humility that, that you know, you're actually tapping into what the gospel is. It's such a struggle for all of us. Um, 
But Jesus is the standard of what it means to live for God. It means humility. It means recognition that we have a reliance on God for every breath that we take. It means to deny ourselves, which involves sacrificing our own agenda and following Jesus in his purposes. <clears throat> Excuse me. But now that we know who Jesus is, he's the Messiah and the suffering servant, we now turn our attention to why he came. We'll spend the next 10 weeks or so answering the question of why he came, but this next passage represents a turning point in the story. From this point on, Jesus will be focused on his purpose for coming. So here, as we approach the transfiguration, I wanted to do another 50,000-foot view of comparisons between the Exodus and Mark. Uh, Matt and Randall have done a really good job, as we've come across these, of pointing it out, but I thought it would be a good time to go from you know, the beginning of Mark up to now, what we've seen so far. So the book of Mark starts with the baptism of Jesus. It's God's voice proudly proclaiming, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In Exodus, as they're leaving Egypt, the first thing they do is they pass through the Red Sea. They pass out of slavery, through the water, and into right relationship with God. They go through a baptism of their own. Then in Exodus, as they're, uh, as they, after they go through the Red Sea, they're led by the Lord into the desert by a, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. The Lord literally goes before them. The Spirit leads them. As soon as Jesus is done getting baptized, what happens? He's driven by the Spirit into the desert. I always thought that was a funny, <clears throat> funny terminology of, you know, the Spirit led Jesus into the desert. And I was like, that's, that's funny. It's a direct comparison to, to, to Egypt and the Exodus. Of course, then Jesus is tempted for 40 days. In Exodus, they undergo 40 years of trial in the desert. Sorry, page is stuck. Uh, in Exodus, there's a miraculous feeding where manna comes from heaven. In Mark, of course, there's the feeding of the 5,000, bread from heaven. Consider in your mind the next events that happen in the Exodus. There's some, you know, obviously some major events coming up in Exodus that we haven't gotten to in Jesus' life yet. So here we go into uh, the next section here. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Eliza and, uh, Elijah and, and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they were looking around, they no longer saw anyone except for Jesus. So Mark is making a very strong comparison in the story. Let's see if we can catch it, obviously. The high mountain. So Jesus put, took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. In Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, Come and meet me on the high mountain and wait there. Three people are taken up the mountain with the leader. In Mark, it's G Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. In Exodus, Moses takes Aaron, Joshua, and Hur. A cloud covers the mountain. And then the uh, leader's appearance changes. In Mark, uh, it says that Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, brighter than anyone could bleach them, which I always think is a funny phrase. It's Mark saying, Jesus didn't just get back from the dry cleaner. It was like, it was way more than that, you know? Uh, and then in Exodus, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, his face is literally glowing because he'd spent time with God. And then both story ends with God speaking. So uh, in Mark, you know, the, then you know, God speaks and says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. In Exodus, there's seven chapters following uh, where, where Moses first 
gets up to the mountaintop with God. And in those six chapters, he not only talks about the Ten Commandments, but he also spends six chapters talking about the tabernacle, rules for how to build the tabernacle. I want it in the center of my people. This is my meeting place with my people. Um, he wants, you know, he gives all the rules and regulations for the tabernacle. Um, so the story is a clear comparison to Sinai, which is the marriage of God's people to God, where God meets Moses on the mountaintop to speak with him. Well, obviously, you know, what does it mean? There's so many layers, and I think Peter's seemingly stupid comment gives us the first indication of, of what this, one of the layers of this, what this means. Why does God speak to Moses on Mount Sinai? So, like, like we were just talking about, um, you know, God spends six chapters after, you know, with, with Moses on, on the top of Mount Sinai, giving him the rules for the tabernacle. At first glance, Peter mumbles some nonsense about these shelters, which literally translates to tabernacles. Uh, he caught what was happening in this situation. Peter is only six days out from being called Satan by his rabbi. He's probably being more careful with his words than we give him credit for. Peter knows his Old Testament and recognizes the invitation that's being made to see the comparison to Mount Sinai. I can picture Peter walking up the mountain with Jesus, seeing, oh, there's a high mountain. Oh, there's a cloud up there. Oh, here's Moses in front of me. He's seeing what's happening, and he's saying, Jesus, I get it. Let's build some tabernacles. The problem is Peter misses something, or rather he misses the same thing that he missed before. He puts Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on equal footing. This would have been the most respect that he could think to pay to Jesus, because in his day, Moses was obviously just like this respectable, amazing character. So he's walking with Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, I believe that you are as great as Moses and as great as Elijah. But in this situation, Peter says something dumb because he's, I think he's, a, he's starstruck. So I was thinking about the first time that I was starstruck. And, you know, if you've all had that experience, you say dumb things, you do dumb things. Um, the first time that I was starstruck, I'm lucky enough to have this moment captured uh, in picture form here. Anybody uh, see who those three guys are in the back? So it's DC Talk, of course. So, uh, not to date myself, but this is, these are the flat top days. These are this, this is pre uh, Jesus Freak, I think. But I'm a little sweetheart down in the bottom left there. So, uh, <laughs> so starstruck. You know, this is like that's my that's my younger sister being held by Kevin there. Uh, and then my sister and her friend in the bottom right there. But this is a moment that we like talked about for years after that. We were such big fans. We even like made up our own dance routines to their to their songs and everything. So, <laughs> but yeah. So Peter is starstruck. Peter is saying to Jesus, "You are. We. I believe that you are as great as Moses, the writer of of Torah, and you're as great as Elijah, the fiery prophet. The problem is <clears throat> there's not equality." It's not good news to Mark's audience, you know, the persecuted church of Rome, if Jesus is the same as Moses and Elijah. Mark's audience was being, were being persecuted for their belief that Jesus' death and resurrection was God taking their punishment for sin and raising them again so they would have a path to God. If Mark were writing to the church of Rome and saying Jesus is equal with Moses and God, that's terrible news. Obviously, Jesus is the new Moses and is the new Elijah, but if that's all he is, that's bad news for the church in Rome. It makes me think of Paul's reflection in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, which says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. If Jesus is just a prophet, 
if Jesus is just the fulfillment of Moses or, or you know, the new Elijah, and that's it, that's bad news. But God himself affirms the deity of Jesus when he speaks. Peter got the tabernacle part right, but just like before where he misunderstood the meaning of Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus missed that Jesus is the new tabernacle, that new meeting place with God. The tabernacle was established on Mount Sinai so that the people would have a way to intercede with God through priests and sacrifices. Uh, the system involved arduous and intense dedication to holiness and obedience in order to approach God. The reference to Mount Sinai is not just some cool Easter egg reference. It's showing us that the tabernacle, tabernacle set up by God through his time with Moses is now to be fully fulfilled in Christ. We're learning now of why Jesus came. Uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, puts it this way, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. So Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. He has entered the great, that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which is not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and, and the ashes of heifers could clean people's blood, bodies for, for, from ceremonial impurity. Just think of how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For, the power, for by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So there we have it. A proclamation of why God came. He came to be the more perfect tabernacle. The transfiguration is drenched in symbolism, symbolism that goes deeper and deeper. Honestly, there's a ton of Elijah stuff in here that I started to write out. I had two more pages of Elijah stuff that it would have, like, you know, I think turned everyone to stones, you know, stony face here. So, um, But, you know, without getting into that, I think the main thing we're meant to see here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Jesus says of himself in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in the transfiguration here, we have a visual of the law in Moses, and we have a visual of the prophets in Elijah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the new Moses. He is the new Elijah. But more than that, he is the Son of God. If you think you were confused by this event, even 2,000 years after we've had time to think about it, Peter, James, and John were way more confused coming down the mountain. So that gets us into our last section here. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had, had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, what do, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he told them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. But how it is written... And now it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So the disciples are pondering what they just saw. They know their Old Testament. They know that in the book of Malachi, they uh, prophesied that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord, before all things would, would be restored. So the disciples are saying to Jesus, we just saw Elijah, the day of the Lord must be near, right? And Jesus Again, they're half-seeing, they're half-right, yes. Um, but Jesus reinforces, once again, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wished. Um, he again squashes their thinking, and he, says, he repeats, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and re be rejected? It's Jesus' way of saying, it's going down, but it's not going down the way you guys think it's going down. I don't think we're meant to look at uh, the disciples 
and ask, how could they not be getting it yet? I think that's the wrong question. I think if we see ourselves in the disciples, and I think we're meant to, we should be asking, how is this me today? In what ways am I diminishing Jesus just as savior of my personal agenda rather than Lord of my entire life? Am I more concerned with living my own truth or focusing exclusively on myself, or am I focused on Jesus? With a closing thought here, um, I took a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis out of Mere Christianity. He thought this matter of dying to self was important enough to end uh, the book, Mere Christianity. So this is the final closing passage of Mere Christianity that we'll finish up on as well. So he says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, submit to the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So with that, we're going to respond. So uh, Austin and Nicole are going to come back up and lead us in worship. Uh, We, of course, invite you to pray as an individual or as a family. Um, If you feel like you need prayer for anything, uh, you know, you can always grab one of the leaders of the church here, but obviously just your friends and and close acquaintances as well. We'd love to pray with you. We invite you to give, which is an act of worship. And finally, we we, uh, invite you to receive communion.